Good morning. After the busyness of the Christmas season, it's so good to be back with you in 2020, all worshiping as a family at Gateway, and I'm grateful to be able to look at God's Word with you this morning. And as we finished our journey through the book of Psalms and transitioned to begin our series in the book of James, this morning we come to a break between the two, and we're going to take a brief dip into the book of 1 John. So if you have a Bible with you, open it with me to the book of 1 John, chapter 1, verses 5 through 10. 1 John, chapter 1, verses 5 through 10. What comes to your mind when you think of a strong believer in Christ? More specifically, who comes to your mind when you try to think of the most spiritually mature believer you know? What is it about them that you consider to be signs of spiritual maturity? Well, I believe our answers to those questions reveal a lot about us and our own spiritual growth, but what if we ask another man, a wise old man from 2,000 years ago who walked with Jesus himself? Well, by God's grace this morning we can, and his name is John. And soon we'll see what John's answer to this question about what should come to our mind when we think of a strong and spiritually mature believer will be. And I wonder if, when we're done, would your answer match up with his? If not, what does that say about you and how you view yourself in the gospel? Well, I trust that God, through this letter from John, will shine some light on this question during our time this morning. And in verses 5 through 10 of the first chapter of First John, we're going to make four different stops through the passage and observe four different truths, and these can all be summarized in this main point. Christ brought us into fellowship with God. Walk in His light by confessing your sin and seeking forgiveness in Him. And to unpack all that entails, if you're able, will you stand with me as we read God's Word, 1 John chapter 1, verses 5 through 10. I'll be reading from the English Standard Version. The words will be on the screen if you don't have a Bible to read from. This is starting in verse 5. This is the message we have heard from him and proclaimed to you, that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light, as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus his Son cleanses us from all sin. If we say we have no sin, We deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make Him a liar, and His word is not in us. Let's pray. Lord, I pray that this morning You will open our eyes, Lord, that as we look at these ideas of light and darkness in this letter that your servant John wrote, I pray you would shine your light into our hearts, Lord. That you would expose our sin and at the same time expose the beauty of your Son to us, Lord. Help us see him this morning. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Letter, you notice a paragraph above there, that's verses 1 through 4. We're starting this, this second section. As it begins that second section, he says in verse 5, This is the message we have heard from him and proclaimed to you. 
So John is explicitly claiming that the message he's about to explain, he actually heard from Jesus himself. And we know he's talking about Jesus because if you read verses 1 through 4 above that, he's using the exact same language to explain that he was physically with Jesus, that he actually touched him and heard him. So he's saying, hey, this message I'm giving to you in this letter, it's true because it came directly from Jesus himself. And we see what that message is at the second half of verse 5. John says, that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. What does that mean? That God is light and no darkness is in him. It sounds good, but what does it mean? Well, because John's writing is very uh, circular, he repeats himself over and over again, but he may explain it in different words. A lot of times, if you have trouble understanding John, just keep reading and he's going to say it in a different way. And that's what he does in verse 6, where we can see that he equates walking in the darkness with lying and not doing the truth. So this image of darkness is a symbol of sin and what is false. Well, if that's what darkness means, what about light? Well, it's the opposite symbol, right? We see that in verse 7 and the rest of this letter. If you read through the end of uh, 1 John, you would see he brings up this theme of light again. Light symbolizes the holiness of God and the truth of God, while darkness symbolizes sin. So when John says in verse 5, that God is light and in Him is no darkness at all. He's reminding us that God Himself is perfectly holy and true and there's no sin in Him. There's nothing false in Him. And isn't this truth just all over Scripture? We sang about it this morning. Think of 1 Samuel chapter 2. says, There is none holy like the Lord. There is none beside you. But I think John knew while writing this that it would be a much-needed reminder for the believers in his time and all the believers afterward because we so often forget just how holy and perfect and wonderful God is. Think of Psalm 50 that uh, God spoke to his people and he was pointing out their sin and he said the reason for their sin was a result of them thinking they were just like him or that he was just like them. This is what God says in Psalm 50. These things you have done, and I have been silent. You thought I was one like yourself. But now I rebuke you and lay the charge before you. So that's describing our tendency too, isn't it? That we think God is a little bit more like us than he really is. And John's going to give us some pretty black and white truth about ourselves and our sin and who God is. And those truths are going to be really hard to swallow if we don't stop here and get this reminder in us that God is not like us. And that is both a wonderful thing and a terrifying thing at the same time. It's wonderful because how lousy would it be if God was just like you or just like me? But instead, He's absolutely perfect in every single attribute, every single characteristic, not an ounce of sin in Him unlike us who are full of darkness and sin. And he never changes, like Grady said in his prayer. He doesn't wake up in a different mood each morning, unlike us who can't wake up in the same mood two mornings in a row. Like I said, that's wonderful news. He's so perfect and holy and mighty and beautiful. But friends, this is terrifying news as well. Because if he is that perfect, he is that holy, 
and we understand ourselves that we are not, we are in a rough situation, aren't we? Apart from Christ, we are in an unfixable situation from our end. And that's what John unpacks for the rest of these verses. How can we worship this God? How can we treasure and approach Him if we're so sinful? We can't stop being sinful, and He's so holy, and He's never going to stop being holy. Well, that's what John devotes the rest of this letter to. And as we continue looking, I just want to encourage you to ask yourself that. In what ways have I forgotten how unique God is, how holy He is? A lot of times this happens slowly in our lives. First, we simply just don't love God as much as we used to because we forget how glorious He is. And then all of a sudden, sin doesn't become as evil or as urgent as it once was because too long we're subconsciously telling ourselves that God isn't quite as serious as the Bible seems to say. And then eventually we don't repent from our sin because sin against a downgraded God all of a sudden doesn't cause us to miss out on that much. Brothers and sisters, I want to ask you, how have you minimized God lately? If you let that thought creep in your mind, has he slid down just a little bit? But friends, John's going to show us the more we raise this view of God, the more we fully see just how perfect and holy he is, the more we're going to see our sin more clearly, but then the more we'll see just how great his love is for us in light of both of those things. So with this reminder about God's nature in mind, John continues on in verse 6 to say this, If we say we have fellowship with him, the God that's full of light and no darkness, while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. So in other words, John is saying, if you say you have a relationship with God, but you're walking in darkness, you're a liar. You're not doing what's true. We noticed earlier how darkness symbolizes sin and falsehood. So what exactly does walking in darkness mean? Well, as we mentioned earlier, John repeats himself a lot. So notice that verses 6, verse 8, and verse 10 are all essentially rewording the same truth, the same idea. And if you read these three things, three verses in a row, you're going to see that, starting in verse 6. If we say we have fellowship with Him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. Well, what is walking in darkness? Rewords it in verse 8. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. Then again in verse 10. If we say we have not sinned, we make Him a liar and His word is not in us. So in verses 8 and 10, He uses the phrase, If we say we have no sin in the place of the phrase, walking in darkness. So walking in darkness is either claiming to be without sin or being oblivious that you even know it's there. That's walking in darkness. So if we go back to verse 6, we can reread it with this understanding. If we say we have a relationship with Him while we walk in darkness, in other words, while we claim to have not sinned or we're unaware of our sin, we lie. We do not practice the truth. Now, when John's saying this, we have to be careful to remember that, like all the other letters in the New Testament, John is primarily writing to believers here, okay? And if you read all of 1 John in one sitting, you would see how he's particularly addressing a sect of false teachers that were tempting these believers to stray from the truth. And these false teachers were claiming to not have sinned since they started following Christ. Now, 
I've not met any of you at Gateway that have claimed that yet, okay? And if any of you have been around me, you know that's not true. Even if I try to claim it, I definitely have since started following Christ. But I wonder, we're applying this to ourselves today in our setting, if there's some of us today that, like myself, have lost the awareness of the degree of our sin. Maybe we would even admit it with our lips if you ask us if we have sinned in the last week. Sure, we would admit that. But deep down, consciously, have we truly grasped the full degree of our sin in our life, even after Christ has saved us? Have we truly processed it? Well, if that's the lifestyle you've been living, then John is making this blanket statement. If you say you have a relationship with God, but you're either denying your sin or you're oblivious to it, you're actually walking in darkness. You're walking in darkness because you're living your life blind to the actual reality of your sin and your situation. You're failing to see God's glory and your sin as it really is. And here John's essentially giving us a test to evaluate our relationship with God. You know, there's a lot of ways our flesh can tempt us to measure our relationship with God. One may simply to be to look at how nice we are to others. That's something that I do a lot. I think, oh, I believe the enemies lie, that I'm nicer than the other few people uh, on my street, maybe. And, oh, that probably means that my relationship with God's got to be pretty strong because I'm pretty friendly to people I meet. Well, I don't know if that's a good test. Well, maybe we uh, believe the one that uh, we measure the involvement or the attendance in church, Right? Or maybe the things we're doing ministry-wise. We use that as a measurement of our relationship with God. Well, if we don't use that, maybe we use knowledge, right? Knowledge of God's Word. We know more than other believers, so we're probably more spiritually mature than them, right? But here, John doesn't give us any of those tests to measure our relationship with God. Not that those things aren't important. But John knew that simply being nice by itself isn't a good indicator of your relationship with God. I'm sure he had met some pretty nice Jews and Greeks that didn't believe in Jesus. Neither does he mention external religious activity, because I'm pretty sure he probably had met some Pharisees in his life that were very externally righteous, but deep down did they do their actions out of a love for God and delight in Him? And he doesn't mention mere knowledge of God because even though he's writing to give his hearers knowledge, he knows that what James said is true, that even the demons believe and know 10 million times more than we do about God, but they don't have a relationship with him. He doesn't list any of those to evaluate our relationship with God. Instead, John says that the test of our genuineness of our relationship with God comes by evaluating our response to our sin. This is the test that reveals what our relationship with God is really like. You see, unlike any of those other tests that we may be tempted to use and trust in, that the enemy may whisper to us, this one actually cuts to the heart of the matter. So we need to turn the tables on ourselves and ask, how aware are you of the sin in your life and how do you respond to it, to it when you become aware of it? John's very black and white in this letter, especially here. And so the implication for us is that those that are the most spiritually mature 
are the ones that are most aware of their sin and respond to it in the proper way. What is that proper way, though? Some of you may be overwhelmed with the awareness of your sin, maybe crippled by it and unsure what to do. Maybe you've thought, how in the world can I be a Christian and can Christ still love me if after I've become a Christian, I still sin against Him in this way? What do I do? No matter where you're at on this spectrum of awareness of your sin this morning, God continues to give us the answer in this rest of the passage through John. John spins verses 6 through 10, alternating between these two different responses to sin and how they shed light on our relationship with God. Like I said in verses 6, 8, and 10 earlier, he shows how when we walk in darkness, we deceive ourselves and call God a liar if we claim to not have sin in our lives. But, verses 7 and 9, he shows the opposite reaction. Being aware of our sin and responding to it in the right way. This is how he says you're supposed to, we should respond to sin. Look at verse 7. But if we walk in the light as He is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. We have a relationship with Him and the blood of Jesus His Son cleanses us from all sin. So here John uses the phrase, walk in the light, the opposite of walk in darkness. And if we said walking in darkness meant being unaware of your sin, and as a result, not responding to it the right way, then walking the light must mean that we see our sin for what it is, and we do respond to it in the right way. And if we keep reading, we see that we're correct. John basically does the same thing he did with the other phrase in verses 7 and 9. Verse 7, he says, If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Notice he uses that same phrase, confess our sins, in verse 9. He uses it in the place of walk in the light. So that's what walking in the light means. It means being aware of your sin and then confessing it. Walking in darkness is being unaware of it, and therefore not confessing it. But to truly appreciate what, what John is saying here, we need to make sure we notice that he isn't using these images of light and darkness just as a random illustration to make his point. John knew his Bible well, I'm sure, and I believe he is giving us an even bigger reminder about what these concepts of light and darkness mean by calling to mind all the ways they're addressed in the whole Bible. I bet if we all sat here and I had a sheet of paper and asked you to think of verses that mention light and darkness, we could probably think of a whole lot of them, couldn't we? There's a reason John's using those phrases here in this chapter. If you think back to Genesis 1, where God said, let there be light, and instantly he provided light for his entire created world, and that was God's first revealing act. Just like the lights coming on in a dark room opens your eyes to all that is there, When God began His creation with light, He started His process of opening our eyes to see all that He truly is, to reveal Himself to us. How do we respond to that revelation of His glory and His light? We should have responded to it by worshiping and loving Him, but Romans 1 describes a different reality. Listen to the similarity between this and 1 John. For although they knew God, 
They did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking. It's describing all of us, right? Apart from Christ. And what happened? Their foolish hearts were darkened. When the lights of creation came on and God's beauty and glory were revealed, we rejected him. And as a result, we fell into darkness which John describes as no longer seeing our sin for what it really is and therefore no longer seeing God's glory and our need for Him. We deserve to be left in that condition, filled with darkness and unable to see God's glory. But God in His love began to enact His plan to turn the lights on again for us. This time He wouldn't do it through creation, but in the salvation that Jesus would bring. So for the rest of the Bible, light not only symbolizes God's holiness, but it symbolizes his action of revealing that holiness to us. Think of we could spend hours going through all the places he does this. Think of a couple at the flood, after the rain. Horrible vision, right? Horrible sight to imagine this flood, right? What happens after the rain stops? What comes out to dry the land and make this rainbow appear? Light And the sun comes. After judgment, God shows that His promise is still going to come true. What about in Exodus? After God rescued Israel in the darkness and wilderness of the desert, what does He use to guide them to the promised land at nighttime? It says a pillar of fire to give them light. He would be the one to guide them and shine this light to show them His glory in their sin. And then in the book of Isaiah, when God gives the prophecy of His promised Messiah, who would save His people from their sin, how does He describe what He would do? This is in the book of Isaiah. The people, all the sinners, right? That's us. Who walked in, what? Darkness. Ah, sounds similar to the first John. Have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shone. This is why Jesus says in John chapter 8, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. He is that promised light, the one that would come to turn the lights on in our hearts again so we could see our sin for what it really is and we could see Jesus for how great He really is. This is what the process of 2 Corinthians 4 describes. This is an awesome verse says here, in their case, talking about all the lost, that's us, apart from Christ, the God of this world, that's Satan, has blinded the minds of unbelievers. Sounds a lot like darkness, doesn't it? To keep them from what? Seeing the light of the gospel, the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. So Satan, he's blinded us. We're blind. We can't see. We can't see our sin. We can't see how good He is. We're in darkness. But what has God done in Christ? That's verse 6 of 2 Corinthians 4. For God who said, Let light shine out of darkness, Genesis 1, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. This is what Christ has done. And those of you that have trusted in Him and His sacrifice on the cross, the lights have been turned on for you. 
Before, apart from Christ, you were blinded in that darkness. You couldn't see the glory of Christ, that Christ was what you should desire most, and you couldn't see just how terrible your sin was and how it separated you from that Christ. But then the same God that shone that light in Genesis 1, He shined it into your heart. So now you can see. You can see that Christ took the punishment for your sin, how He died in your place, and He's given that light into your heart to show you your sin show you himself this is why john says we're supposed to walk in the light because when you walk in the light you're living with the awareness of your sin and of christ's glory we're just continuing on what christ already did when he saved us but how do we do it the fact that he reminds us about it shows that we're going to struggle with this so how do we do it how do we walk in this light well did you notice that verse we read from John 8, I said it pretty quickly, but where Jesus says he's the light of the world, pretty big pronouncement, right? What's he say right after that? I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. That's what John's telling us not to do. Don't walk in darkness. So if we listen to Jesus, by the way, same author, right? First John, Gospel of John. Not a coincidence. What does Jesus say is the answer? To follow Him. So if you don't want to be unaware of your sin and you don't want to miss out on the goodness of Christ, Jesus simply says, follow me. Come to me. And you're not going to walk in darkness. So friends, no matter how much darkness you may feel like you're in today, the answer is always to run to Christ. Just like in a dark hallway, when you're on the one end and you see a light all the way at the other end, the closer you get, the more you start to see, the closer we get to Christ and the more we run to Him, the more we're going to start to see Him. And at the same time, our sin as well. He wants to do that. He wants to continue to shine that light into our hearts. But we need to make sure we don't miss one more aspect of this proper reaction. Yes, we see sin for what it is, and we see Christ for what it is, for who He is in light, in, in light of the light He has shown into us. But just seeing the sin and seeing Christ is not enough. John doesn't stop there. Remember that test that we said John gave us to evaluate our relationship with God? Well, if the first part of the test is, okay, are you aware of your sin... Then the second part of the test is, okay, how do you respond to it when you're aware to it, when you become aware of it? And this is what John says in verses 7 and 9, both of these together here. But if we walk in the light as He is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. So we we now know what walking in the light means. If we see sin for what it is, and we see Christ for who He truly is, we will have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus His Son cleanses us from all sin. If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That's interesting. Reading a scripture like this, I know sometimes in my mind, I'm sure probably in some of yours, my flesh will start to whisper to me, why do you need to confess? Why do you need to confess that sin, Jesus has already paid for all of it, hasn't He? There's no need to confess. He's already forgiven you for all your sins. Well, first, in response to that, we need to remember that, 
like we said, John's addressing professing believers here, right? So he's addressing any of us that have started to fail to lose the awareness of the sin in our life after we became a Christian. So he's not necessarily talking about sins that we committed before we became a Christian, but sins we've committed since we became a Christian. And notice what he says about these post-conversion sins. These are sins after we have come to Christ that he's talking about here in verse 9. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. This is something John is showing is very important and practical for our Christian life. Notice this, that not only does God command us to confess our sin, but also notice that in a very real sense, He bases our forgiveness on confessing that sin, even after we may have been born again. Now, to show show you what I'm getting at here, this is also similar to what uh, uh, Jesus says in Matthew chapter 6. Listen to this one. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses... Neither will the Father forgive your trespasses. So what's, what's going on here? Is God saying that we need to become a Christian again every time we sin? Well, no. But we do need to remember a couple truths from Scripture if we're to understand both of these things together. First, it's absolutely true that we are forgiven and declared to be righteous by God only on the basis of Christ. Only on the basis of Him and His death and sacrifice for us in our place on the cross. That's a process called justification. You may be familiar with that if you've read the book of Romans before. A word that means that that's God telling us, you're now righteous because of what Jesus has done. So we have that in mind when we're reading 1 John. We may wonder, well, if God's done that, if He said, you're righteous because of what Christ has done on the cross once for all time, then why the need to confess sin? And why does he seem to be withholding forgiveness if we don't confess? I don't think John's denying what Jesus did on the cross for us and how we were justified, how we were made right before God. But the truth still stands that God's telling us to confess our sin. And if we confess, he will forgive us. So how do we reconcile those two truths? Well, as we prepare to close, I want to share this quote with you that was huge for me, extremely helpful in making sense of this, and it's from a well-known professor at Southern Seminary that uh, Seminary Grady got his degrees from. And I've never found a better explanation of how these two things are both true, and it elevated my understanding of the gospel and the understanding of why I need to confess my sin and how I go about doing that. So I'm going to read this to you slowly. It'll be on the screen. You can follow along. He says, First... From God's viewpoint, there is no problem with saying that when He declares us just, that's righteous, He forgives our future sins, as well as our past and present sins, since our future lies before Him as an open book. Yet, from our point of view, it's best to think of our justification as the forgiveness of all our past and present sin, and as the ground for the forgiveness of our future sins. So stay with me here. As we live our lives and unfortunately sin, we need to return to God in repentance, in faith, and seek His forgiveness. Yet we do so on the basis of Christ's work applied to us in our justification. Such an experience is not a new justification. He's not declaring us righteous all over again. Again, 
but a renewed application of our justification. He rewords it and summarizes it in simpler language here at the end. When we sin, we lose our consciousness of forgiveness and sense of peace with God. Sounds like darkness, right? We start to be blinded to what's going on, actually. So when we confess our sin by the work of the Spirit, we are reawakened to what Christ has done for us. And God revives our security in Him and assurance of our salvation. Believers then continue to pray for forgiveness, not with the despair of one who thinks he is lost, but in the confidence of justified and adopted children approaching a heavenly Father who has declared them righteous in Christ. So that's why God commands us in verse 7 to walk in the light by confessing our sin and seeking forgiveness on the basis of Christ's blood alone. He wants to reawaken us. He wants to turn on the lights again for us to remind us how the security of our salvation is found only in Christ. So, brothers and sisters, I want to give you a final exhortation to don't let this gospel become a one-time event in your life. Don't let it become a one-time event. John's telling us that the gospel is not something that's just for unbelievers. You may run into people if you ever move out from Montgomery and go to a different church. You're going to run into a church that thinks the gospel is just for unbelievers. That's a lie from the pit of hell. John's saying here, the gospel is for believers every single day because we've got to confess sin every single day. And who are we going to trust in ourselves to forgive us? Just that God's nice and will let it slip by? No. The same reason He saved us in the first place. On the basis of Christ's blood alone. That's the beauty of the gospel is that we don't seek forgiveness from God on the basis of ourselves or anything else. Nor do we have a fear that this new sin I committed will somehow break the relationship completely and I'll be lost and I have to get re-saved. No. Instead, in the beauty of God's wisdom, He has designed this gospel for that when we do sin after we become a Christian, it is now a reminder and a tool He uses to bring us back to Himself, to remind us of Christ and His blood and how the only assurance, the only righteousness, the only ground and reason of our justification is in Christ alone. So friends, as we close, that main point that we said at the beginning, Christ brought us into fellowship with God by His blood. Walk in His light by confessing your sin and seeking forgiveness in Him. Seek Him, friends. He wants to shine this light into your heart to reveal more and more of your sin and more and more of His glory. Then confess that sin to Him, friends, because He longs to forgive and cleanse you on the basis of His blood alone which he has promised will always be there as long as we live to confess and restore and forgive us when his light shines on us. Let's pray. Lord, we as a church family just come to you, Lord, and we want to do what your child John wrote thousands of years ago. Lord, we want to confess to you. Lord, we have let our understanding of your greatness and your glory and your holiness slip and slide down and 
Lord, we confess that we sometimes put you on our level. But God, we want you to remind us. We want to seek Christ, Lord, that his light would shine into our hearts and reveal just how glorious you are. And Lord, at the same time, even though it may hurt initially, Lord, reveal our sin to us, Lord. Show us just the the depravity of our hearts, God. But that is such a good thing to happen, Lord, because when we do that, when you do that and reveal it, Lord, we see Christ and His beauty, Lord. We see just how precious You are and how the only way for us to be with You and grow in You is to trust more and more in the blood of Christ. So that's our prayer this morning, Lord. In Your Son's name we pray. Amen.